Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Dischem Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. Hope uh, everybody had a good Rosh Hashanah, all our Jewish listeners. And it's good to be with you on this Monday morning. We're speaking to Dr. Barry Payne, who's a specialist ophthalmologist at the Oxford Center and the Sanson Eye Center. And he is going to be telling us about all very common eye problems, maybe a few not so common eye problems, or when you should see an ophthalmologist or not. Thank you, Dr. Payne, for coming and uh, taking out your time this morning. Morning to your listeners. Thanks, Dean. Okay, perfect. Um, so let's uh, jump straight into it. What's the mo- what are the most common things that you see in your private practice? You described yourself as a general ophthalmologist. Uh, what do you see on a day-to-day basis? As a, a general ophthalmologist, um, I see patients with an incredibly wide range of eye diseases, um, the unusual all the way through to the very common. Um, and the bread and butter in terms of common eye diseases that we deal with uh, on an everyday basis would be Cataracts, which are generally age-related, but also include your, your pediatric age group, traumatic age group, etc. Um, patients with glaucoma, uh, either primary open angle or much less commonly the angle closure glaucoma, uh, age-related macular degeneration, and then eye diseases related to sort of your systemic conditions like thyroid and in particular diabetes. So those would be the main diseases we encounter, particularly the sight-threatening diseases. The slightly less common are your surgical retinal conditions, such as retinal detachment. And then the very common mild infectious, mild allergy, blepharitis, dry eye scenario, which at this time of the year is very prevalent. So it's a wide range of disorders from those disorders that are irritating and impede on the quality of daily life all the way through to sight-threatening emergencies. So it's a nice mix of things. Okay, great. So let's maybe talk about it in the same order that you mentioned it. So what exactly is a cataract and who gets them and why? So a cataract is any opacity of your lens. The lens is the structure within the eye that lies just behind the iris. So when you're looking at an object, the image passes through the cornea, which is the clear front of the eye, then through the pupil, which is the dark spot. It's the aperture of the eye, if you're thinking of it as a camera. And behind that is a lens. And the lens, uh, its primary uh, primary role is to alter the focal point of the eye to allow the eye to transition from far to intermediate to near back out again. And the cataract is any opacity within that. So a cataract is not a growth on the eye. It's a where your natural lens has become opacified. Um, that's by far the most common cause of that opacity is aging. Um, and by and large, all people will eventually get cataracts because all people's lenses will degrade over time. They will harden initially leading to presbyopia or the inability to transition, as we discussed, and that usually occurs at around about the age of 50. And thereafter, the hardening of the lens causes degradation of 
the structure and it starts to become opaque. On the other side, there are an enormous list of other causes from congenital causes in children to medications such as cortisone, inflammatory conditions in the eye such as uveitis, uh, radiation, trauma, uh, and then diseases such as diabetes and then other inherited metabolic diseases which are much less common. So the, the, the presentation and the list of causes is, is very, very vast, but by far the most common is an aging of the lens, and that's what we see most common. So what, what will the patient notice that they, when they come and see with the cataract? They say, I can't see properly or I have blurry vision or I can't adjust my eyes anymore. What's the main complaint usually? So the presbyopia is the I can't see near, which is where people start to lose the ability to transition from distance to near. But with a cataract, the main complaint is blurred vision, where spectacles aren't helping anymore. Uh, people used to see well, but despite wearing their glasses or they never wore glasses before, they, they just start to notice a gradual um, deterioration in their vision. It's generally gradual. Um, it is usually in both eyes, but can be quite asymmetrical. And there are other symptoms which can be starbursts of light or problems with glare or monocular diplopia, which is where you're getting double or ghost images when you're looking with one eye, and it's important to differentiate rather than looking with both eyes open at the same time. So you can have these other symptoms where you can still see relatively well, but the quality of your image and the quality of what you're looking at is quite poor. It's also fairly important to remember that not all cataracts impinge on your vision. So if the cataract is quite peripheral or quite insignificant, um, you may have no visual symptoms. So the fact that someone has a cataract doesn't automatically um, mean that they will be a candidate or they will require surgery. Often you can have quite uh, significant cataracts, but as long as there's no impingement on your visual function, uh, there's no need to inter- interfere or to operate on those people. Uh, but the uh, by far the most the most common presentation is a gradual, steady loss of quality of vision, and that's not rectified by improving their refraction. So it's not rectified by using spectacles. Can you always see the cataracts in the eyes? Would you be able to see if you looked in a mirror and looked into your eyes? Could you see the pacification or cloudiness? Um, generally not. Uh, generally, so the pupil appears as a black spot because no light is coming out of the eye. If you use cameras that don't have the anti-red reflex or the older cameras, that red reflex is a reflection of the light off your retina. So if you took a photo of someone with a cataract, you may well see a lack of that red reflex coming through. Um, But if you looked at yourself in the mirror, generally you'll still just notice a black spot. That's in the early to moderate stages of a cataract. Once a cataract becomes more profound um, and your vision really deteriorates um, quite badly, if you look at somebody's eye, you might notice that the pupil, which is generally black, has become hazy or white. So if you've got a really bad cataract, uh, you're going to notice a white pupil. Um, the point at which that occurs, though, you can't see through it. So you're not going to notice it in yourself all that clearly, but somebody else might notice it. But at the point at which you can actually physically see a cataract, your vision's usually quite badly impaired. Okay, awesome. We're going to take a short ad break now, and maybe when we come back we can talk about 
uh, surgery for cataracts or what do you do? How do you fix them? We'll be back after this. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I am Dr. Dean Gerson and I am talking to Dr. Barry Payne, who is a specialist ophthalmologist in Oxford Road. And we've just been talking about cataracts. We spoke about the presentation and uh, what do they look like? How do we treat cataracts? You mentioned earlier that not everybody needs surgery, but I imagine the vast majority of people will need uh, surgery. Hi, correct. And the, the a better description of a cataract operation is actually a lens exchange procedure or lens replacement because you're not scraping off or just removing the cataract. What you're doing with uh, current cataract surgery is you are under sedation or under general anesthetic, but generally sedation, going into the eye, opening the bag structure where the lens is sitting, and then removing the patient's lens in totality, and it's done by breaking the lens into little pieces with ultrasound power and vacuuming the lens out of the eye, and then replacing that lens with an artificial lens. Um, and that artificial lens is then placed into the bag structure, and the Lens or the cataract surgery is more or less the same regardless of the age of the patient and regardless of the cause of the cataract. Um, and so we'll focus generally on you know, your age-related or senile cataract. That's the, by far the most common. But fundamentally, the surgery is the same principle. It involves opening the eye, opening the bag in which the lens sits, extracting the lens, and then replacing it with an artificial intraocular lens into the eye. Can you tell us about uh, what happens on, what, what happens on the day? Is it like a day procedure? Is the patient awake? Are they sleeping? And how uh, maybe a simplified version Absolutely. of um, how you actually put the le- lens uh, lens in? Absolutely. So, by and large, generally the procedure is done under sedation. Uh, people go to a, a hospital. You'll be at the hospital for a couple of hours to deal with all the paperwork, mission, then you're moved into a, a normal operating theater. There's generally an anesthetist who will take care of the sedation where you're awake, you're able to cooperate, but you're nice and relaxed. Um, the surgery is then performed, or I perform the surgery under topical anesthetic, so the eye is numbed with eye drops whilst you're lying, and by the time the sedation has kicked in, you're quite relaxed, and the eye is completely numb. The inside of the eye is then numbed once as a very tiny 2 or 2.4 millimeter incisions made into the eye. Uh, anesthetic fluid is injected inside uh, just to wash the inside of the eye to make sure it's completely numb. Then through that very small, approximately 2.5 millimeter incision, instruments are placed into the eye first to open the bag in which the lens is sitting. The, as I mentioned earlier, the lens is then broken down with ultrasound power and extracted with a vacuum, so it comes out in little pieces. And once that is done, you're left with a very stable eye pulled with fluid and a bag that is empty. The intraocular lens uh, is then injected. It's rolled up almost like a carpet and injected through an injecting system into the eye and then unrolled or unfolded into the eye and positioned carefully within that bag. Uh, once that is done, various fluids that we've used to protect the eye are washed out. 
the wounds, because of their shape and their construction, are usually self-sealing. So there's no need to put stitches. It's the natural pressure in the eye and the step-shaped tunnel that we create to get in that seals itself. So the eye is then nicely sealed. Um, and the whole process of the surgery takes approximately 20 minutes. Uh, it depends on various factors, how quick or how easy. It depends on how hard the lens is. So as we get older, the lenses tend to get harder and harder and require more and more ultrasound power. A younger lens, somebody under the age of 50, is much softer and almost can be vacuumed out without any ultrasound power. And, yeah, as I say, the, the process, it's a day case. Uh, once you leave the theater, you, you have a shield over your eye. You can see through it. But it's a bit foggy because of the ointment that's placed into the eye to protect it. Uh, generally speaking, we do one eye, and then sequentially a few days or a week later, we do the other eye. And that's, I would say, 95% of the surgeries are done like that. There are a few occasions where people do sequential surgery on the same day. Uh, it's much less common for a number of reasons, but it can be performed. But generally, we do one eye at a time. And you leave the hospital an hour afterwards when you've had a cup of coffee, the, the sandwich, just to recover. Well, uh, well it sounds uh, awesome and uh, very simple and uh, not a big event at, at all. Um, are all the lens, the, talking about the lens that you put in the eyes, are all the lenses the same? How do you calculate your uh, need to ask lens? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So there's a, a number of things to consider. Firstly is the determination of what power lens to put in the eye. And uh, that's done with the equipment that we have when you see an ophthalmologist for your consultation. And it calculates that lens based on the shape of the eye and how long the eye is and by estimating where the eye will be in terms of uh, position relative to the front of the eye. So with the technology that we've got at the moment, there are various formulas depending on what shape a person's eye is, and that will determine what power lens we put into the eye. And the lenses are made by various manufacturers. Uh, I'm not going to mention them all on, on F, but there are a number of manufacturers, and they've got various pros and cons to their lenses in terms of the materials that they use and uh, various other design features. So that's, the, that's what the lens is and how we calculate it. But the next part, which okay. is the cool. interesting discussion with a, with a lot of um, with a lot of patients, is determining what you want that focal point to achieve. And there are a few factors. One is that the, the modern lenses are able to correct for astigmatism, and so anyone who has more than one diopter of astigmatism, we would take that into account and use a, a specialized lens to correct that. The next decision is whether someone wants their focal point at the distance or at about a meter or intermediate zone or near for reading. So we can take those readings and determine what power lens, and that's only determined by a conversation with the person, what they're used to, what their lifestyle's like, what their hobbies are, what their expectations of surgery are. And then the final factor is whether we use a multifocal or a monofocal lens and, uh, Multifocal lenses have some huge advantages with regards to spectacle independence where people are able to have these lenses with an ability to focus far and intermediate and near. Uh, 
However, multifocal lenses also come with a compromise because in order to achieve that, the image or the light that is coming into the eye needs to be somehow dispersed over those focal distances. And in order to do that, there's got to be some kind of compromise. So multifocals, although they sound wonderful, are not for everyone. Um, they have some big advantages, but at the same time, they, there is always a compromise. So when you're chatting to someone before their surgery, these are all the factors that you need to look at in, with regards to what their occupation is, what their hobbies are, whether they're used to wearing glasses for either distance or near. And with all of those factors and then those uh, the measurements that we use to determine what power lens, we, we select what we hope will be the best lens for that individual. It's completely customized to who you are, what your uh, expectations are, and, and what we're trying to achieve with regards to what type of glasses you'll wear afterwards, if okay. it's any at all. Okay. Okay, we're going to take another short air break, and uh, afterwards maybe we can uh, start talking about glaucoma. This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. The pain, we are just talking about, we we're just talking about cataract. Can we start to talk now about uh, glaucoma? Can you tell us exactly what is glaucoma and who gets it? So, glaucoma again, encompasses a few different conditions, but we'll focus on uh, open-angle glaucoma because that's by far the most common uh, presentation. Angle closure glaucoma is a a different disease entity to a certain extent. Um, It's much more sudden in its onset. It's it's very hard to miss it because it's painful. Your eye is red, and we'll leave uh, angle closure glaucoma alone. Open-angle glaucoma is one of the leading causes of irreversible blindness in the world. Um, and it's one of the most important eye diseases that we treat. The big difference between something like a cataract and glaucoma is that a cataract is almost always reversible. And regardless of the degree of loss of sight, a cataract operation is often successful. Whereas with glaucoma, firstly, in the beginning phases, people aren't are very frequently unaware that they have glaucoma. And then once we've got to a situation where a person's lifestyle is affected, their quality of vision is affected, and they're aware of a loss of sight, um, there is still a lot that we can do to treat these people, but unfortunately we've missed the boat. So with glaucoma, the, the emphasis is on early detection. And for that reason, particularly our colleagues, the optometrists, um, work together with us with regards to identifying people who are at risk. And the greatest risk for glaucoma is raised intraocular pressure. That's typically the the puff test that most people will have had when they've gone for routine eye assessments. And the critical factor with that puff test is to identify people whose pressures are high. Because in the early stages of glaucoma, that's the presentation. There's no symptoms. People can still see well. People's vision is unaffected. Uh, but in routinely or as sort of a, uh, a routine checkup, the intraocular pressure is found to be high. And what glaucoma is, it's a fairly poorly understood disease where due to an imbalance of the pressure inside the eye, the nerve is gradually damaged. And that's got to do with direct mechanical factors, blood flow factors, inflammatory factors. But 
in a nutshell, what glaucoma is, is it's a, it's a gradual progressive destruction of the nerve within the eye due to pressure. And that's why detection early is fairly critical. Who should be going for screening for, for glaucoma? Who does? You said ophthalmologists do and you do. Should everybody yeah. be having glaucoma screening? Everybody should be screened. And most people are screened because most people at some point in their lives will see an optometrist to check their sight. Um, if you're not checked routinely by the age of 45, 50, when people are starting to become presbyopic or lose the ability to transition, even if you've had fantastic vision your whole life, it's likely that you're going to start needing reading glasses, at which point you'll often see an optometrist. And optometrists will test everyone. Um, generally speaking, open angle, primary open angle glaucoma is a condition that starts in late adulthood. So we would be more concerned in people over the age of 40 or 45. And the one key factor is if you've got a family history. So there's a very strong genetic component to primary open angle glaucoma. So if you've got a, a parent or a grandparent or sibling who's got glaucoma, then you should be sure to consult someone who can do a thorough test and an accurate assessment of not only your pressure, but of the optic nerve and of other risk factors. If you've got no risk factors and you're over the age of 45 or 50 uh, and no other eye diseases, uh, routine screening would be performed by optometrists where they would check your vision and check your pressure accurately is sufficient. And only if anything abnormal is detected or if you've got a history, does it need to be referred to ophthalmologist for a specialist assessment. Okay, so can we get on to some treatment now? How do you treat glaucoma? So the objectives of treatment are to decrease the pressure in the eye. Uh, we haven't got any treatment or nothing commercially available yet to restore damage to the nerve. So currently our treatment is focused on preventing further damage, and that's done by trying to limit the, the pressure in the eye. And there are three manners in which this is done either with topical eye drops, and there are various topical eye drops available with different pros and cons. Usually it's either one drop a day or one drop twice a day, and in some occasions one drop three times a day, but it's an eye drop. And as with treating things like hypertension, it's for the rest of your life. So once you've been diagnosed and it's been established that you require treatment, uh, medical treatment with eye drops is the one option. Cases where eye drops are not sufficient or the pressure is too high or a person cannot have uh, treatment with eye drops or the eye drops have failed, then we often progress to surgery and there are various surgical techniques to uh, to bring the pressure down. And essentially the objective of the surgery is to try and create some kind of pressure release or bypass where the pressure in the eye is decreased surgically. And to do this, there are a number of either surgical techniques or little devices that are inserted into the eye to act as valves or as drains. Between the two, surgery and medicine, uh, there is a, a laser treatment called SLT or selective laser trabeculoplasty, which works by changing or remodeling the drainage angle. So within the eye, fluid is produced just behind your iris, travels through the pupil, and then is drained through what's a meshwork back into your circulatory system. And this laser 
is done in a sort of office environment sitting in a chair with topical anesthetic, so it's not a surgical technique, where a laser is aimed with a mirror onto this drainage meshwork and by with a cold laser it modifies the structures to make the little gaps bigger, to make the meshwork more permeable to fluid and to bring the pressure down. And just to mention, although I've mentioned it in that order, it, there's no particular reason that it has to be in that order. Some people are better candidates for laser first before drops. Some people have surgery first because the extent or the, the pressure warrants it. And there's also no reason to transfer backwards and forwards between the two. So the management of glaucoma is quite quite complex and your objective is partly to bring down the pressure, which is the easiest to monitor, but the main objective is obviously to maintain your sight. And so although we might think we're winning, we'll always monitor someone very carefully because if their pressures are controlled but they continue to show damage to the optic nerve, then we need to be a bit more aggressive. So it's As I say, it's a fairly complex management but there are various options. So there's always a way of finding one option that's the most suitable for your patient. Okay, great. Um, let's move on to our next uh, topic that you said was a very common thing that you see in practice is uh, eye disease from systemic uh, diseases such as diabetes or thyroid. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what happens to eyes of patients with diabetes? Uh, so diabetes as a disease, is a really difficult disease to manage by physicians and everyone associated with it because it affects all the organs in the body. And uh, over many years, that damage from diabetes or uncontrolled blood sugar levels progressively damages the blood vessels throughout the body. But those areas that are most sensitive, being the brain, your heart, your kidneys, and the eye, those are the areas where you, you start to get dysfunction because of this uncontrolled diabetes. And diabetes does affect various parts of the eye, but what we're going to focus on uh, is predominantly the retina, which is the nerve within the eye. Um, and over a period of time, people who've got both the insulin, uh, insulin resistant type 2 diabetes, broadly categorized, or your insulin-dependent type 1, both of them can get uh, diabetic eye disease. As with glaucoma, our main objective with diabetic eye disease is early detection and early treatment. Because if you can pick up the eye disease early on, you can prevent quite serious sight-threatening loss later. So most people who have diabetes will regularly see either through their managed care, whoever, whether it's with their GP or an organization that manages their diabetes, they will have regular photographs taken of the inside of the eye. And those photographs are assessed by people who have been trained to look at um, damage and to detect early changes that need management. And those people are not necessarily always ophthalmologists, uh, but they have been specifically trained to, to be able to recognize the changes. Once there is damage to the inside of the eye, there are a number of things that might need to be done. Uh, the control of new blood vessels, which grow, which sounds like a good idea, but is really 
uh, a consequence of a lot of damage where the inside of the eye is not getting sufficient oxygen. The eye then grows new blood vessels to try and rectify that situation. These blood vessels are unfortunately abnormal and unregulated, so they are very prone to bleeding, causing scarring, pulling on the nerve. So the objective there is to try and treat these blood vessels by diminishing the eye's demand for oxygen. And we do that by using a laser in the periphery of the eye. And that laser burns parts of the retina to shut down that area and minimize the oxygen demand. And then by doing so, allow the more important essential central area to to get more of the oxygen and to, to suppress these new blood vessels from growing. The other process that you might hear is something called diabetic macular edema, which is swelling of the central part uh, of your retina. So the macula is just a, an anatomical description rather than a structure, and it, it refers to the central part of your retina. And with diabetes, you get leakage of the vessels and swelling in that area. And this process is managed with injections or implants into the eye. Previously, it was managed with also with a laser, but that's been surpassed by medical treatment, which works really well uh, to minimize the swelling to improve a person's vision. But it does require ongoing treatment, and frequently it's not, unfortunately, as simple as one injection or one implant. Uh, often it needs to be repeated because the, the damage that's been done by the diabetes doesn't disappear. So the, the management of the consequence, which is the edema, needs to be continued. So diabetes, um, and please, Dean, cut me off when you uh, when, <laughs> when you need to, but diabetes is one of those the diabetes is one of those diseases, again, as I say, which is really a sight-threatening problem. And if you see real severe damage to the retina, and because we can directly visualize it and we can see the blood vessels, it gives us a good indication of what's going on in that person's kidneys, what's going on in that person's brain, what's going on in that person's heart. So the other important factor for us is to work with our colleagues, because if we're starting to see severe diabetic damage on the retina, they're going to need referral to make sure that their renal functions managed properly and that their comorbid disease, which makes it much worse, such as hypertension, is also under control, that their cholesterol is under control, that they're educated and don't smoke, that they monitor and manage their diet properly. So it, it's a nice little window into a disease and to give us a stage as, and to help um, with that overall management because as I say, diabetes doesn't just affect the eye on its own. It's a really good indication of what's going on all over the body. Okay, we're going to take another short ad break, and we come back and we'll discuss uh, more about the eye. This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We're speaking to your ophthalmologist, Dr. Barry Payne. And we're just talking about diabetic eye disease. Uh, Dr. Payne, does high blood pressure or hypertension um, have the same effect on eyes? Yes, it does. Uh, hypertension is a, a, lead, a big risk factor for a number of eye conditions. Um, it's not like diabetes where you have this enormous variation of problems specifically related to uh, to diabetes. With hypertension, it's 
again, more of a vascular, overall vascular risk factor. And so any vascular disorders or diseases of the eye, such as vein occlusions or artery occlusions, uh, are much higher, there's a much higher chance if someone is an uncontrolled hypertensive. And so in these people, they've got a chance of getting tiny strokes or blocked blood vessels that affect the back of the eye. And so for that reason, hypertension needs to be managed. On the other extreme, when you have very, very severe hypertension, people often present with blurred vision, and that's because of the raised pressure and swelling of the optic nerves. Uh, the point at which your optic nerves are swollen with regards to high blood pressure, you then need to be hospitalized. That's, that's an absolute emergency. So if someone's blood pressure is sufficiently high to start causing blurred vision because of the blood pressure, um, you're going to need immediate hospitalization and, and management to control that. But the other eye vascular conditions, as I mentioned, where blood vessels, either a vein or an artery in the eye become blocked, uh, those are relatively common conditions, particularly the blocked veins in the eye uh, that we see on a regular basis and need to be treated. And then if you've got hypertension, you've also got a risk of getting uh, vascular disease elsewhere, for example, in your carotid arteries or your heart. And those conditions can also lead to uh, problems within the eye. Also, with blood pressure in particular, it's important to remember that it's not just the eye that's responsible for your vision. You can have strokes or problems with the vascular system all along your visual pathway, all the way to the, the back of the brain, which is where your occipital cortex and your visual function is processed. So although we worry about the eye in particular, it's really critical to remember that the whole pathway, including the brain, um, can also be affected by the, these conditions. And so not managing blood pressure is very important, um, but it doesn't lead to specific eye disease the same way that diabetes does. Uh, you can gauge how bad a person's blood pressure has been over a long period of time by looking at the blood vessels in the retina uh, and they will show changes which are consistent with how long a person or how severe a person's blood pressure has been uncontrolled um, these changes themselves can't really be managed, they're just an indication they're themselves not necessarily going to cause uh, blurred vision or loss of sight but they, they are as we mentioned, slow risk factor for those blood vessels becoming dysfunctional and becoming blocked. Okay, let's uh, maybe move on to macular degeneration. What is exactly what exactly is the macula? What does it do, and why does it degenerate? Um, so, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, just macula itself is not a independent structure. Uh, a, a good way of understanding what the macula is is it's the central portion of the retina that's most responsible for your central vision. So the macula is a very, very important part of the eye um, because it processes about 90% of what your visual function is. So a lot of your peripheral vision is your retina, and the central retina is your macula. And macular degeneration is uh, the leading cause of irreversible vision loss. So it's a very common condition. Uh, the onset of macular degeneration is generally quite a lot later than other conditions. 
and the presentation to most of us is a, around the age of 70. However, if you look for the precursors and if you're looking for age-related maculopathy uh, before it becomes a, a age-related macular degeneration, these findings are detectable in about 2% of the population from the age of 45. Once you get to your mid-70s, approximately 1 in 10, so approximately 10% of the population are affected. So as you get older and older, the incidence goes, gets much, much higher. And fundamentally, it's a it's an inherited or genetic condition. We don't understand all of the patterns, etc., and there are a multitude of genes which are responsible for the degenerative um, degenerative pattern that develops, and there are certain risk factors which are higher than others, but it's a gradual progressive destruction uh, at the center of the eye. Broadly, and uh, what people often will immediately ask is, you know, do you have the wet type or do you have the dry type of degeneration? And it's not different types of degeneration. It's just different processes that occur. So the dry type is, to think of it as where the, the retina is wearing thin. There's no leakage. There's no fluid. There's no swelling. But you get, you're starting to develop a condition called geographic atrophy, which is atrophy means a, a wearing thin or a gradual destruction. And then the wet type or the exudative type is where a membrane has grown because of the degeneration at the macula. And that membrane or that abnormal, those abnormal blood vessels leak and cause bleeding and my, small areas of the retina to, to become swollen. And that's what is the, the wet type of macular degeneration. Um, but fundamentally, the two conditions are the same thing. They're just different parts of the same disease process and they do occur together. So people who have got dry can develop wet in the same eye, and people who've got wet will have a degree of dry at the same time. So that's just an important factor for people to realize that if you don't get diagnosed as a wet type or a dry type, it's just you'll be at a wet stage or a dry stage of, of the of the process. And how do how do we treat macular degeneration? Um, the first part is to try and modify as many of your other risk factors. And probably the one that is modifiable and is to stop smoking. And that's probably the highest risk factor that's modifiable. So you can't do anything about getting older. Uh, in a lot of studies, uh, ladies seem to be affected more than men, so you can't change that. Things like uh, UV light exposure, etc. the the results are very equivocal or very disputed. So... There's not a, a great degree of evidence to say protecting your eye from UV light will or won't help. Um, and then what has received a lot of attention is a dietary manipulation where the use of antioxidants are used to try and delay progression or to slow down progression of the disorder. And there were some really big studies done with regards to a, a supplement and there are a couple of supplements on the market, which are multivitamins with various um, minerals added to it and substances such as lutein or zeaxanthin and omega-3. Um, 
things are added, and those are oral supplements. So that's the, the one preventative or slowing down arm of managing it. Dry or atrophic or that component of macular degeneration at this point, there's nothing else with regards to the management thereof. It's a gradually progressive disorder, and you can try these systemic things at the moment, but there's nothing else at this point to inhibit it or to reverse it. There are some interesting drug studies going on, but nothing that we can do at the moment. On the exudative or on the wet part, and this is... Uh, Barry, can we take a short ad break? And sure. Uh, we'll talk about Barry when we get back there. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson, and we're speaking with Dr. Barry Payne, ophthalmologist. And we're busy talking about macular degeneration, and we're about to talk about uh, the wet type and treatment for the wet type. The wet type is often the more aggressive in terms of presentation, where people's vision deteriorates much more rapidly. And there are a number of treatment options. Um, quite a few of them we no longer perform, so they might have been performed a few years ago and they've been phased out. But the mainstay of treatment that we have at the moment is the use of a medication called an anti-VEGF agent, which blocks your vascular endothelial growth factor. And the, by doing this, we can reverse a lot of the leakage, inhibits the growth of these new blood vessel membranes in the eye and in a lot of cases not only stabilize a person's vision but actually reverse a lot of what vision has been lost and these anti-VEGF agents are given directly into the eye by a very very small injection on the white part of the eye and the they usually need to be given uh, every month initially for the first three months and thereafter, the frequency of the injections is determined by a person's response. And there are various protocols. Uh, the one that is probably the most widely used is what we call a treat and extend, where we do the three months, and then depending on a person's response, if they're doing well, we try and increase that interval between the, the injections. Um, if you're someone who has suffered from macular degeneration, you'll appreciate that this is uh, not a pleasant experience, but is very, very well tolerated. It's usually done uh, in a side room or not necessarily done in theater. And the, the injections themselves, hopefully, should be fairly well tolerated. So it does sound like quite a horrible experience, but because of the nature of the, the needle being very, very small and very delicate, um, the injections themselves Usually people cope with them fairly well, and the effect usually works really well. Um, on the South African the South African scenario, we have various types of injection, uh, and the selection of which one to use is usually done in a stepwise manner, starting with one agent. If it works, you continue with that. If it doesn't work, you can alter your treatment plan and change to one of the other one of the newer agents. Um, then there are circumstances where we don't use anti-VEGF. Uh, look at other medications, variations of autosome and tried for certain conditions or certain people. But fundamentally, the, just the treatment at this point is an injection into the eye. Some of the sort of more experimental medications 
either orally or into the eye. We're still working and are still not available. And what we really would love is to, to get to a situation where the damaged retina, particularly in people who've got this geographic atrophy and the blind spot centrally because of the damage, that that damaged tissue can be... Where can patients get hold of you if they want to come and see you? Can you just give us some contact details? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Um, the phone number for my practice is Johannesburg double eight zero four two zero zero. So eight eight zero four two zero zero. Alternatively, if it's easier to email, you can email admin at drpain.co.za. So that's admin a d m i n at drpain. Spelt out to D-O-C-T-O-R-P-A-Y-N-E dot C-O dot Z-A. So either the phone or failing the phone, please drop us an email. And if we get the email, we'll return your call and make an appointment. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Barry Payne, for joining us today on 101.9 High FM. That's Dr. Barry Payne, specialist ophthalmologist, working on Oxford Road and at the San Jose Eye Center. Thank you so much for taking out your time and telling us about common diseases of the eye. Thank you to our listeners for joining us. There won't be a show next week because of Yom Kippur, and we'll be back the following Monday. Stay safe and have a good week.